Welcome back to the Preternaturally Inclined Podcast, a podcast aimed at the abyss of undiscovered truths and mysteries which pepper the human experience. Today's episode is pineal gland part two, dream states and death states. We will discuss Dr. Restressman a bit more, and I'll get into Galen's pneuma theory, what that meant, and also, can you trip just by throwing down on a staring contest? Now we'll start with concept known as a disassociation. Now, strange events, they can trigger disassociation. And one source I had talks about that twist of perception. It's indicative of all that weird, strange phenomenon. They call it dissociation. It's a term used in psychology. It refers to any sensation makes you feel detached from all your immediate surroundings. And be caused by a bunch of stuff like memory loss, uh, abuse, trauma, all that sort of things. Be intentionally initiated with stuff like LSD, ketamine, mushrooms, alcohol, and maybe DMT. Now, we were talking about DMT in last week's episode. And does DMT actually get produced in our pineal gland at certain times in our life? And if that's the case, where's the research? Where, where is it that says that DMT is verified by the pineal gland at all? And in 2013, and the researchers, I believe it's the Cottonwood Institute, unless that's something else entirely, unless that's like a GoFundMe kind of thing, I'm not sure, but they reported they found DMT in the pineal gland of rodents. In the pineal gland we talked about last episode, produces melatonin. And I didn't talk about this at all last episode, but I guess that's derived from serotonin somehow. Anyway, melatonin affects the sleep patterns, circadian rhythms, all those sort of things. And there's this big assertion that DMT occurs in the pineal gland and it's released in dreams as well as shortly before birth and death. And they keep talking about needs for the research and all this. You know, I gotta admit, as much as I want to believe in the powers of the third eye and having connection to consciousness, Dr. Ristressman himself kind of clarifies what the current known research really has to talk about. But that comes into play a bit later. Uh, right now we'll talk about um, pages 245-246 of uh, Rick Strassman's book, The Spirit Molecule. And uh talks about how I guess this is sort of like when you're having a mystical experience or like a DMT trip. It's like the three pillars of self, time, and space. And this is, and I quote, the three pillars of self, time, and space all undergo profound transfiguration into a mystical experience. There's no longer any separation between the self and what is not the self. Personal identity and all of existence become one and the same. In fact, there's no personal identity because we understand it at the most basic level, the underlying unity and interdependence of all existence. <clears throat> Past, present, and future merge together into a timeless moment, the now of eternity. Time stops in as much as it no longer passes. There is existence, but it's not dependent upon time, now and then, before and after, all combined to this exact point. On the relative level, short periods of time encompass enormous amounts of experience. As our self and time lose their boundaries, space becomes vast. Like time, space is no longer here, nor there, but everywhere, limitless, without edges. 
Here and there are the same. It is all here. In this infinitely vast space and time, with no limited self, we hold up to examination all contradictions and paradoxes and see that they no longer conflict. We can hold, absorb, and accept everything in our mind that conjures up. Good, evil, suffering, happiness, small and large, we're now certain that this consciousness continues after the body dies, and that it existed long before this particular physical form. We see the entire universe in a blade of grass, know that our face was like before our parents met. Extraordinarily power feelings surge through our consciousness. We are ecstatic. The intensity of this joy that our body cannot contain, it seems a temporarily disembodied state. While the bliss is pervasive, there is also an underlying peace and equanimity that is not affected by this incredibly profound happiness. In the ad, there is a searing sense of the sacred and the holy. Unquote. <clears throat> now, Dr. Strassman. A Stanford University graduate with specialization in psychiatry and pharmacology. They call him the torchbearer behind the idea that DMT is released when we're born and when we die. He took on a five-year project to investigate the effects of DMT. Administered like 400 doses. Like 60 people. And they, like, they screened them. They're all volunteers, but they were like heavily pre-screened and all that. And throughout his work... Him and his team, they came, and they actually made a rating scale. It was like the HRS, the hallucination, hallucinogen rating scale, and it's been widely accepted throughout the international research community. 45 articles that documented its use as a solid instrument for measuring psychological effects. I mean, based on... All his extensive research and his observations, Dr. Strassman hypothesizes. When somebody is approaching death, and possibly even in just a dream state, the body releases relatively large amounts of DMT. All his volunteers, they always report really profound encounters with non-humans and these really deep spiritual experiences. And in his words, he believes that DMT could explain some of the wild imagery described by survivors of near-death experiences. You know, and then very similar to when people recount their dreams, kind of. I mean, there's not much evidence behind it and all that, so that's really the problem, is because his research is one of the first that really brought facts into it. In his book, he talks about, unquote, that it exists in all of our bodies and occurs throughout the plant and animal kingdoms. DMT, it exists... It's part of the normal makeup of, de of humans and mammals and marine animals, grasses and peas, toads and frog, mushrooms and moles, barks, flowers and roots. It's basically, it's, it's in absolutely everything. And he talks, he continues, that 25 years ago, Japanese scientists discovered that the brain actively transports DMT across the blood-brain barrier into its tissues. I know of no other psychedelic drug that the brain treats with such eagerness. It's a startling fact that we should keep our mind when we recall how readily biological psychiatrists dismissed a vital role for DMT in our lives. If DMT were only an insignificant, irrelevant byproduct of our metabolism, why does the brain go out of its way to draw it into its confines? Unquote. It goes without saying that DMT strikes interest not only based on the reports, all this crazy, strange, all these weird hallucinations that happen, but you might even be able to unravel further mysteries within our brain. And even 
thescienceexplorer.com and they get their say in their articles in DMT. And they have the same kind of speculations where the illegal hallucinogen is released in our brains during birth, death, and dreams. And it's one of the most intriguing psychedelic substances on earth. And then not just because of all the crazy shit that happens, but because a lot of it is considered endogenous. And endogenous just means it's it's created within our own bodies. And all the crazy stuff, the unimaginable stuff that people you know have occurring where they're talking with aliens and then going to these really crazy realms and distorted things and all this and sort of a thing. You know, you, we have these people, Terrence McKenna, for example, who come out, this psychonaut come out, an ethnobotanist. He comes out and he's, he's apparently used DMT like 30 to 40 times throughout his career, his career. And he wrote this book called The Archaic Revival. He says, and I quote, This was really DMT that empowered my commitment to the psychedelic experience. DMT was so much more powerful, so much more alien, raising all kinds of issues about what is reality, what is language, what is the self, what is three-dimensional space and time. All the questions that I became involved with, oh, with over the next 20 years or so. And, I mean, McKenna, with a lot of others, they've tried the drug. They insist, man, it's just so surreal. You, you, can't, you can't describe it in no words. And McKenna talks about it. He's just like, it can't be downloaded into, a low into some low-dimensional language such as English kind of a thing. And so they have a bunch of, like, play-by-plays of his experiences and he describes a trip as and it goes from seconds to seven minutes and when he says the trip wraps up it's hard to remember it all and all this and that so it's kind of like a very dreamlike experience where you don't remember it he, he says how it's it could play kind of a role in dreaming it melts away and i quote the dream melts away this is terence mckenna the dream melts away is the same way that a dmt trip melts away but you know in light of all this, and let's say, for example, that it is true. Let's say that the pineal gland does release some kind of DMT um, while we're dreaming and at death and even at birth. Let's say that a lot of it is true. Well, Rick Strassman has a bit to say about it with the entire thing. And he says about how he's done his best, and I quote, I did my best in the DMT book to differentiate between what is known and what I was conjecturing about, in parentheses, based on what is known, on parentheses, regarding certain aspects of DMT dynamics. However, it's amazing how ineffective my efforts seem to have been. So many people write me, or write elsewhere, about DMT and the pineal, assuming that the things I conjecture about are true. When I was writing the book, I thought I was clear enough, and repeating myself would have gotten tedious. So a lot of it, you know, it's it's all conjecture he was talking about. So anyway, he goes on, he says, We don't know whether DMT is made in the pineal. I muster a lot of circumstantial evidence supporting a reason to look long and hard at the pineal, but we do not yet know. There are data suggesting urinary DMT rises in psychotic patients when their psychosis is worse. However, we don't know whether DMT rises during dreams, meditation, near-death, death, birth, or any other endogenous altered state, to the extent those states resemble those brought on by giving DMT. It certainly makes one wonder if endogenous DMT might be involved. 
And if it were, it would explain a lot. But we don't know yet. Even if the pineal weren't involved, that would have little overall effect on my theories regarding a role for DMT in endogenous, in, in endogenous altered states because we do know that the gene involved in DMT synthesis is present in many organs, particularly lung. If the pineal made DMT, it would tie up a lot of loose ends regarding this enigmatic little organ. But people seem to live pretty normal lives without a pineal gland. For example, when it has to be removed because of a tumor. So, <clears throat> no pineal gland, and then and, and, and you'll be alright. Well, that really, that throws a gigantic hole into my theory about the pineal gland being the third eye and the pineal gland being the source of consciousness and so forth because people will they'll get uh tumors and they'll get cysts on their pineal gland and then and then where you go from there a lot of them do get it surgically removed and i did find one article where a lady had it removed and she had a cyst on it and the article was taken down, and it was taken back up. And anyway, it's 2017. She says, "I had my pineal gland removed in July. I still have a con. I still have a conscious. I think she just she's trying to say I still have consciousness, and I'm quite aware of the world around me. I'm still recovering from brain surgery, and a bit, so I'm a bit more dizzy and slightly more forgetful. But th that's getting better all the time, which I would expect as much." She says she no longer has a pineal gland, which creates melatonin, and since surgery, she uses low-dose Ambien in order to get to sleep. She says her pineal gland was taken over and destroyed by a cyst. And she sleep problems well before it, and having the cyst is rare. And the people who have cysts, um, having symptoms from it is even more rare. So the number of people who need the, gl the gland removed is so low that you actually have to see a specialist, okay? And so the consensus among the uh, pineal gland groups, uh, the guy in Houston, Dr. Dong Kim, he's the most experienced and he seems to be the most successful surgeon. And so she goes on to talk about if you're asking because you've had it, go in and check it out uh, with an MRI, if you have a lot of pain and migraines and so on and so forth. And she goes, if you're not worried about new age pseudoscience, such as the pineal gland calcification from fluoride, please reconsider what you're reading, and so on and so forth. Look for studies done by universities and reputable resources. And she ends with, life goes on pretty well without a pineal gland, sans pineal gland. I'm still working to have a better relationship with sleep, but life keeps going, and I'm just in a lot less pain now. So I think, like, yeah, you know, brain tumors, cysts, yeah, that's ordinary. Like, you know, you get cysts everywhere. People do all over the place. And I don't think I'm really going to go into the whole calcification of the pineal gland. I mean, there's there's websites all over. They talk about, oh, these calcification chunks that come out. I mean, they look like little chunks of gravel. And then they did mention uh, Prozac is actually this thing, oh, fluoxetine. And I guess apparently it's 30% fluoride. Apparently, apparently Prozac is 30% fluoride. That's that's kind of weird. But I'll get into that in a future episode maybe. But We'll get off pineal gland for a little while here because honestly, it's going to take a bit more research on all of this. It's going to just be one of those things where, look, it may or may not be the cause and may or may not be the product of a near-death experience or may or may not be 
something that's released when we're born or when we have reactions. But one thing that interests me was that if you could gaze into someone else's eyes, would you be able to cause hallucinations? And that's the whole thing. Like, are you, are you going to be able to trip if you get into a staring contest with somebody? And if you can trip when you get in a staring contest with somebody, why the heck is that supposed – like, how is that supposed to be a thing? And again, I checked out this article with ScienceExplorer.com. This Italian researcher, he found evidence to back that claim. And he figured out how to induce an altered state of consciousness, and I quote, without any psychedelic drugs involved. I mean, <clears throat> apparently, you, you know, most people aren't aware that it's possible to achieve altered states of consciousness and vivid hallucinations without using LSD and magical mushrooms and all that. Apparently, you can stare into someone's eyes for 10 minutes. This guy, Giovanni Caputo, he ran an experiment on 20 people. 15 of the people were women. And basically, they just stared into someone else's eyes for 10 minutes. 10 minutes straight. And I'm sure it was like, you know, it wasn't like a real staring contest where you're not allowed to blink or look away, just normal. But he, he tweaked the lighting in the room just a bit, so it was bright enough for everybody to see, but it was dim enough so that their color perception was kind of thrown off. Then they had a control group who stared at a wall in the same dimly lit conditions, and they didn't experience any, like, weird states of consciousness. And they weren't told much about it. They were The study people weren't told the, too much about it, just that it had to do with this meditative experience with eyes open. And... Just doing that little task, it actually created out-of-body experiences among the volunteers. And then they started seeing monsters, the relatives. They started seeing their own faces on the other person's face. It was weird. And um, in the British Psychological Society Research Digest, this guy, Christian Garrett, wrote, and I quote, the participants in the eye-staring group said they had compelling experience unlike anything they'd felt before, unquote. So 90% of the people said they saw deformed facial traits, 75% saw they saw a monster, 50% saw they said they saw aspects of their own face in the other person's. And different, like, similar studies, they had tested ways to produce these disassociative-like states. When they stared a dot in the wall... And they stared into the mirror for a long period of time. And they were saying that both methods, they'd be able to, you know, generate some sort of weird hallucinatory, hallucinatory effects. But for some reason, they said that staring into other person's eyes, another person's eyes, is the most effective dissociation-inducing technique yet. Caputo calls it, and I quote, interpersonal gazing. This is a more powerful disassociate effect on humans than staring into a mirror. The article starts to go on and it says about how it's a pretty strange concept and makes a lot of sense, though. When the mind it works in these really weird ways, it's influenced by our visual perceptions. As we go on day to day, we never really sit still long enough. We, we barely sit still long enough for 10 minutes to focus on anything. So if we're always busy interpreting new information, jumping around with our trains of thought... We can't really sit down with one focus, just staring into someone's eyes, and then the brain's inner workings, it might mess with our perceptions, and then it'll throw us in a new state of consciousness we've never experienced, kind of a thing. So I thought that was pretty interesting, and we'll get back a little bit into the pineal gland 
just a bit because last week's episode we mentioned a guy, uh, Galen or Galen. I honestly didn't figure it out. But um, kind of a nod to next week's episode as well. Um, basically, his concept's been pretty largely refuted since <laughs> a huge number of researchers since the Renaissance. But it's interesting to note that there's just like there's no real theory for what the spark of life is or, you know, the so-called soul or whatever you want to call it. There's no real theory that's been laid forth, you know. There's no real roadmaps, you know, like these near-death experiences and then these, these so-called, like, mass hallucinations, whatever you want to call them. Like, it, it can only really go so far into the phenomenon of consciousness. We, we need to go deeper. But um, as the story goes, Gallon of Pergamum, <laughs> uh, Greek Galenos, Latin Galenus, he was born 1920 CE, died in the 216. So, I mean, he lived pretty long, you know. Physician, writer, philosopher, like we were saying about in the last episode, and he had a pretty huge influence on medical theory that was, you know, practiced throughout the Europe Middle Ages for a long time. You know, his authority in the Byzantine world and the Muslim Middle East was similarly long-lived kind of a thing. You know, his dad was super rich. His dad was an architect. You know, he got sent and educated as a philosopher and what's known as a man of letters. His hometown, Pergamum, had this pretty awesome shrine. It was to the healing goddess Seplis. And it was known by many distinguished figures of the Roman Empire for cures. And when he was 16, he changed that career to medicine. When he studied at Pergamum and Smyrna. Smirnoff! No, I'm... I'm just destroying modern Izmir in Turkey, which is what Smyrna was. I'm destroying these these pronunciations. But uh, finally, he uh, ended in Alexandria at Egypt. And it was the greatest medical center of the ancient world. So after more than a decade, he went back to Pergamum in like 157. And he served as chief position to the troop of gladiators um, that were watched over by the high priest of Asia. And in 162, we went back to Rome. He rose in the medical profession. He had these really awesome public demonstrations of anatomy. You know, he knew a bunch of rich and influential patients that really they opened the door for him and a lot of stuff. And, you know, they really they were on his side because a lot of these doctors had said, oh, you know, these patients are incurable. So they figured out what's wrong with them and whatnot. The dude was really learned. He had great rhetorical skills. Every time he was in a public debate, he was killing it. His whole background of like, you know, with wealth and having all those great contacts. And he had his old uh, philosophy teacher, Eudemus, he had a pretty good friendship with him. That made his reputation a lot bigger too, you know. So it made him more like known as a philosopher and a physician of his time. Well, he stopped his little sojourn into the capital in 166. He claimed that the intolerable envy of his colleagues had prompted his return to Pergamum. Uh, there was this plague coming in a row that was, you know pretty more compelling of a reason. In 168-169, he was called by the Jordan Emperors Lucius Verus and Marcus Aurelius, which I thought was interesting. They could join him on a military campaign in northern Italy. And then after his sudden death, Verus' sudden death in uh, 169, Galen went back to Rome, and he was still working under Marcus Aurelius and the later emperors of uh, Commodus and Septimus Severus as an Egyptian. Galen's final works were written after 207 which suggests that his Arab biographers were correct, that he had died at 87. And when you get into a lot of his medical studies and a lot of things he re researched on anatomy, 
he thought anatomy was basically the foundation of medical knowledge. I mean, he always cut apart a bunch of, uh, as they term here, experimented on such lower animals as the Barbary ape or African monkey. And he cut apart pigs, sheep, and goats and whatnot. You know, his, his whole advocacy of dissection, it was really, you know, it helped improve the crap ton of surgical skills. It was, it was great for research and all this sort of thing. He kind of formed it kind of like as his brand of self-promotion. But he was a pretty accurate observer, hands down. He distinguished there was seven pairs of cranial nerves. He described all the valves of the heart and observed the structural differences between the arteries and the veins and all that sort of shit. It all came from this guy. One of his most important demonstrations was that the arteries carry blood, not air. Because for 400 years, they thought the arteries had air. So he also uh, had vivisection experiences carried out. I thought it was interesting. He tied off the uh, recurrent lurid laryngeal laryngeal nerve to show that his brain controls of the voice to show that the brain controls the voice performing a series of transections of the spinal cord to establish the functions of spinal nerves tying off the ureters to demonstrate kidney and bladder functions i mean he was held back a lot. There was this huge social taboo against dissecting human corpses which i mean at the time you know, all the things he said about human anatomy, anatomy and he dissected all these animals and stuff like that, it led him into a lot of weird errors. His anatomy of the uterus, when he talks about the uterus, is pretty much the dog's uterus. He talks about that. It's interesting. Um, his physiology was kind of like a bunch of ideas. He took them from Plato and Aristotle and Hippocrates. And he really thought Hippocrates was – he was like oh, from the horse's mouth kind of thing, like the, the fount of all medical learning. He viewed the body as consisting of three connected systems, the brain, the nerves, which are you know totally responsible for sensation and thought, the heart and the arteries responsible for life-giving energy, the liver and the veins, and those are responsible for nutrition and growth. And his whole thing he was saying is that blood's made in the liver. And then it's carried by the veins to all parts of the body, where it's used up by nutrient or transformed into flesh or other substances. And then he was saying the tiny bit of blood seeps through the lungs between the pulmonary artery and the pulmonary veins. And then it mixes with air. And then that seeps from the right to the left ventricle through minute pores in the walls separating the two chambers. And then a small proportion of the blood is further refined in a network of nerves at the base of the skull. In reality, the only way you're going to find these are in like undulates and stuff like that. And then the brain to make psychic pneuma, which is what he determined to be a subtle material that was like the vehicle of sensation. So that sensation was carried by this pneuma, which... The entire nonsense I just spouted out about that, that tiny bit of blood seeps through the lungs of the pulmonary artery and the pulmonary veins and it gets mixed up with air and then it goes from the red to the left ventricle of the earth through minute pores in the wall. That's, that's all nonsense, I'm sure. The idea of the pneuma is interesting because when you look at the, how it's all break down, he has a bunch of different words for everything. His physiological serums has a bunch of stuff with the liver, the heart, the brain. And it has to be constantly renewed if you're able to keep living. This is what he said, basically. Like a simple schematic of it was 
The chyle, which is C-H-Y-L-E, or digested food, is brought to the liver, where it's worked up into an impure blood, imbued with the first of the pneuma to innate all things, the natural spirits. This concoction passes into the veins which are believed to leave from the liver. This blood, charged with natural pneuma, then goes to the right chamber of the heart, where impurities are exhaled through the lungs. The purified part then trickles through the invisible ports in the pits, or the intraventricle septum to the left ventricle, entering it drop by drop. And then he postulates, These invisible pores do not exist. Preferation of the septum leads to blue babies who must be operated on to repair the holes immediately upon birth if they are to live. So clearly this is before they realized that blue babies were just a phenomenon that had occurred because the umbilical cord would wrap around it. But anyway, he goes on, um, The blood is imbued with no more pneuma, drawn on from the outside of inhalation through the lungs. The net result is that the blood is now charged with a higher form of pneuma, the vital spirits. This blood, along with its associated natural spirits, goes via the arteries issuing from the heart to the brain. In particular, the fine net of arteries at the base of the brain, the red amirabile. There is no blood further refined and charged within the final and highest form of pneuma, the animal or psychic spirits. The psychic spirits pass through the solid part of the brain and ventricles of the brain, and then to the nerves, which are hollow tubes. It's through the agency of the animal spirits that movement and thought are affected. And I got this off of, I believe it was like a professor's website, but he was saying about how he puts every organ into play with his theory. He takes the liver, the heart, and the brain, and he was saying that the liver would turn chyle into impure blood, and then imbue that blood with pneuma, the natural pneuma, the heart, and then further purifying the blood and then charging it with the second form of pneuma, the vital spirits, which the brain works up to the highest form of pneuma, the animal spirits. And then when we really get it set up, we have a pretty more what he says, a concrete system of tripartite division of the solar spirit than in Plato. When Plato admits to himself that a vague repurl of the bodies of the parts of the, atom, of the body, the abdomen, the chest, the head, begins a physiological, not a metaphysical division. But we have to know that nowadays, anatomically, even though he was kind of like the ones who taught us to follow things you know, with anatomics, that his, his claims are false. The veins issue from the liver, the arteries from the heart, the septum dividing the chamber of the heart has invisible holes through which the purified seeps through the left and left chamber. There is a fine network of arteries at the base of the brain in which the animal spirits are worked up. All of those claims that he said were completely false. But I mean, his theory, it got, it got really spread out throughout the centuries. It was really seductive. And a lot of people, they never really challenged it. He built on a bunch of earlier, like, Hippocratic conceptions. He believed that, like, a lot of... It was, it was really the old-school stuff where they believed in humors. You have to keep a equilibrium before the four main body fluids. Uh, blood, yellow bile, black bile, phlegm, all that sort of weird shit. And then the humors, they're all made up from the four elements and all this sort of the thing. And it, it represents the four primary qualities, hot, cold, wet, and dry, and blah, blah, blah. But, I mean, as opposed to Hippocrates, he always said that the, the imbalances in humors can be located in certain organs, as well as the body as whole. So the modification of the whole humors theory, it let, let doctors make more, like, you know, precise diagnosis and all that sort of things. They could give people specific remedies to help the body balance because they realize which organ was in trouble kind of a thing. 
And then you, when you continue the Hippocratic conceptions, Galenic physiology it was one of the biggest influences for the next 1,400 years. He was considered both a universal genius and a prolific writer. He had like 300 titles of works. 150 of them survive wholly or in part, of course. He was perpetually inquisitive even in areas remote from medicine, such as linguistics. Excuse me. <clears throat> he was an important logician, he says, who wrote major studies of scientific method. He was a skilled polemicist, an incurable publicist of his own genius. And all of these traits, when you combine it with all the amazing range of his writings, I mean, he was literally the L. Ron Hubbard of his time, but he was, he was writing what he truly thought was the truth, essentially because that was as close as he could get with the tools at his time to figure out exactly what was going on. And it helps explain how much fame and influence he had at a certain point in time. I mean, his writings spread around throughout his lifetime, and a lot of his works survive and were written within a generation of his death. Now, by 500 CE, his works were being taught and summarized as Alexandria. His theories were already crowding out those of others in the medical handbooks of the Byzantine world. All these Greek manuscripts begin to be collected, and then the, all these... Um, Enlightened Arabs, apparently, would translate them in the 9th century. And then around uh, 850, this guy, Hunan ibn Yishak, this Arab physician at the court of Baghdad, he made an annotated list of 129 works that him and his followers had translated from Greek into Arabic or Syriac. And all the medicine in the Arabic world became based heavily on his commentary exposition and the understanding of the works of him. But, I mean... It, you know, initially his influence was pretty negligible in Western Europe, except for a lot of his drug recipes and all that sort of a thing. But after the 11th century Hunan translations, with commentaries on them from Arab physicians and stuff, and then sometimes they'd be able to get the original Greek writings, they translate those into Latin. Then those Latin versions they came to be they came to form the basis of medical education for all the new medieval universities that were popping up, and then. After 1490, all the Italian humanists, they kind of thought about they need to feel the need to prepare all the new Latin versions of Galen directly from all the manuscripts that he had in order to free his texts from these crazy preconceptions, these crazy misunderstandings that they had about him. His works were first printed in Greek and in their entirety in 1525. And in Latin, swiftly, they had come straight after. These texts, they had followed a different picture from that of the Middle Ages. One that emphasized Galen as a clinician, a dietitian, a diagnostician, and above all, an anatomist. His new followers stressed that his methodical techniques of identifying and curing illness, that his independent judgment and his cautious empiricism really helped to investigate the human body that all, all of the investigations that have ever really followed. Because all the physicians that have followed him, they were like, we got to repeat these experiments and observations that this guy had recorded. And this soon led to the overthrow of his authority as an anatomist. When uh, Andreas Vesalis showed that Galen's anatomy, the Flemish physician, Andreas Vesalis, I'm sure everybody knows that guy. Yeah, no, no, you know him. Uh, I see you over there. You know, you know 
Andreas Vesalius, no doubt. Um, he showed that the anatomy of the body was more animal than human in some of its aspects. It became clear that Galen and his medieval followers had made many errors. Galen's notions of physiology, by contrast, lasted for a further century when the English physician William Harvey kind of whoop, threw that whole thing out the window. He explained the circulation of the blood, the renewal, and then the overflow of the Galenic tradition in the Renaissance was really one of the hugest aspects of modern science, though. So, it's kind of interesting, because I like to look at all sides. I like to do pretty deep research on all of these things, just to get, you know, as from as many sides as I possibly can, and get as many opinions on all of it as I can. So, as I think about modern science, and as I, I witness it progress, I think we tend to find a lot more and more accurate knowledge, you know. And um, one article I saw in Live Science, it said about how these so-called out-of-body experiences or near-death experiences or even some of these really intense hallucinatory experiences that people have, whether or not that's the influence of endogenous DMT, it might actually be a, a brain glitch. And this article that they had from uh, July 2011 talked about how, yeah, sure, out-of-body hallucinations can be freaky. And a lot of people who think you have even out-of-body hallucination, that's just, you you have mental or physical illness. You know, you're probably either half-dead or you're pretty screwed up in the head. But the article goes on to say that new research links these experiences to instabilities in a part of the brain called the temporal lobe, to errors in the body's sense of self. And this is even in healthy people who don't really have any sort of, like, mental illness or anything like that. Unquote, it seems to be that all of us can be placed somewhere along a sliding scale, based on how unstable or erratic our temporal lobe is. Some people are more prone to these experiences, end quote, said study researcher Jason Brathwaite of the University of Birmingham. When you talk about the temporal lobe, I mean, that's kind of why this episode I was supposed to do brain implants. I didn't do it because the temporal lobe and I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a fucking brain surgeon. I need to do a lot more research into that whole thing. But, um, the temporal lobe interprets sensory information and other information that comes in from the body, places it on a, what they term here as a body map. And it gives us a sense of being inside our own body, which is kind of odd because it's hard to imagine yourself sort of inside yourself sort of thing. Basically looking out from your eyes. If you try to turn your eyes inside. But anyway, the body map gives us a sense of being inside our body and then looking out from our eyes. And if that interpretation goes wrong, hallucination might occur. Where they see themselves outside their body and they call it an outside of body experience. Out of body experience, whatever. And these experiences, they're traditionally thought of as, you know, usually around like a near-death experiences, but that doesn't always happen to be that way. Like certain out-of-body experiences can occur in all these different, if you get into sort of like a sort of super relaxed state, like almost waking up from sleep or, you know, almost falling to sleep kind of a thing. A lot of people have super intense temporal lobe seizures or uh, intense migraines and experience it. And it was saying about how 10% of people of the general population have experienced an out-of-body experience. Well, 
in college undergraduate and college undergraduates this number is double and they don't know why it's double in college undergraduates usually falling somewhere between 25 and 25 percent maybe because they're fucking wasted all the fucking time but in the researchers sample of 63 undergraduates 17 individuals which was 26 percent they have reported as having an out of body experience that's trusting that they're not fucking liars but they filled out a questionnaire to assess their mental state the people who had reported having an out-of-body experience, they showed differences in only two parts of the questionnaire. The ones that had indicate, ones that it would indicate instabilities in the brain's temporal lobe and the errors in the body of the sense of self, a sense of itself. And when you were to measure a participant's temporal lobe stability, they had to ask questions like, do you ever sense the presence of another being despite being able to see any evidence? And, and it was an example question such as, do you ever have the sensation that your body or other part of it has changed or is changing shape? Participants who completed it, they also completed a uh, computer-based task where they were asked to imagine being in place of a figure on the screen and they were to point at little parts of the body like, which hand is the figure's glove on and all this sort of shit. And so the people who had experienced out-of-body experiences were slower in their responses and like more prone to make more errors and whatnot. And then it starts talking about how a lot of data was distortion or a lot of data was basically distorted. And so like when we have a distortion in our sense of bodily self, like our sense of being inside of ourself and looking out from our eyes, that can be caused by a bunch of conflicting information coming in from the body or disruptions of communication in the temporal lobe, which processes information into a body map. And this comes from uh, Braithwaite, which he was quoting to LiveScience.com. Braithwaite said, Your sense of self, of where you are in space, is not automatic. Your brain needs to work it out all the time. Unquote. It's constantly sampling that information and constantly making that interpretation of where you are in space. And sometimes that interpretation goes wrong. Yeah, he's right. Sometimes that interpretation goes wrong. And technically, that could be the cause of the out-of-body experience. We're going to wrap it up today. But uh, we'll be back next week with a pretty pretty crazy episode. Well, we'll go on and do a little bit more science. And we'll talk about a little bit of weird theories I've had about. <laughs> well, you'll see. But uh, again, if you have any comments, go ahead and leave them um, wherever you find this. And it's on Podbean. I'm going to get uh, something set up for YouTube coming up pretty soon. Um, you can find me at uh, hypnosneaks at yahtoo.com and sethanatosic at gmail.com. That is H-Y-P-N-U-S-N-Y-X at yahoo.com and sethanatosic at gmail.com which is s-e-t-h-a-n holy shit okay so it's s-e-t-h-a-n-a-t-o-s-i-c at gmail.com yeah they don't even bother with that one who, who the fucking who, who can fucking follow that one anyway yeah We'll see you guys next week. Hopefully you liked this episode. Uh, we didn't get any closer with really discovering if the pineal gland is the source of consciousness or anything like that. But 
we could just kind of pop off with one quick idea about it where if it is a brain glitch, if like say the temporal lobe and say really intense dreams, like if you guys have ever had a really intense dream where basically your entire sensory perception and everything for the rest of the day is messed up by that dream. Like you just, you can't stop thinking about that dream. Like usually a dream about like an ex or something really super intense or I don't fucking, it's always some crazy dream that you just, you don't even want to like deal with it the rest of the day, but you can't stop thinking about it the rest of the day. You ever had one of those? Those are super interesting because it makes you think like, well, during the rest of the day, are you just kind of like running? I don't know. But anyway, Thanks, you guys, for bearing with me. I will see you guys next week. Bye.